Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Jonah. Jonah, uh, starting a new study this morning through the book of Jonah called Runaway Grace. Jonah's a fantastic book. It's, it's in the Old Testament, sandwiched in between uh, the other so-called minor prophets. And if you can't find it, just use your table of contents. No one's going to judge you. It's, it's not the easiest. I put a little sticky note in there for myself, so I'm up here fumbling around trying to find it. It's a short book, uh, but it's a very powerful book that we're going to look at over the next uh, five weeks or so. Jonah represents one of the best-known stories of the Bible. And I guess if I did, uh, if we did a word association game with anybody, you know what that is, you say a word and you ask the other person to say exactly what comes to their mind immediately without sort of filtering it or whatever. If we tried a word association game with Jonah, you know, regardless of who we tried it with, if I said Jonah, the other person would most naturally respond with what? The whale, right? So it's, it's known for uh, Jonah and the whale. That's the way that it's known. Um, the, but here's the thing, the whole fish swallows man part of the story is actually barely even tangential to the point of the story. It has very little to do with the actual story. Because we can get lost in questions like, what kind of fish was it? We're not actually told it was a whale. What kind of fish was it? How big is a whale's belly? And what were Jonah's surroundings like in the whale's belly? Personally, I envision Jonah's time in the whale to be something a little like this. You can see, I think there's probably, uh, there's, a lot, there's a hot tub there, there's a pool, you know, so there was extra space. But um, we don't really know, what, what was it like in the belly of a whale? Who knows? Well, we can't really say, but the more the time we spend speculating on that, the easier it is for us to actually miss the point of the book. One commentator calls Jonah probably the best known yet least understood book of the Bible. Pastor and author Sinclair Ferguson writes, Jonah is not a book about a great fish. It is really a book about God and how one man came through painful experience to discover the true character of the God whom he had already served in the earlier years of his life. So Jonah is actually a book about God, the nature of God. More specifically, the book of Jonah is a story that reveals to us the stunning nature of God's grace. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been surprised by grace, by being the recipient of mercy, when you expected to receive anger, frustration, condemnation, rejection, harshness, and instead you received kindness, love, tenderness, warmth, and it, it kind of shocked you. It was so different than what you expected. Can you remember an instance like that in your life. When you were absolutely sure that, that the response of the person toward you was going to be one of vitriol, one of punishment, one that, which was him lashing out at you, well, maybe you could say that's actually what you deserved. But the response was undeserved kindness. There's power in that, isn't there? Maybe you remember in your childhood breaking a, a cherished vase. Maybe Maybe you were told uh, in your house like I was, look, don't throw the football in the house. But I couldn't help it. I was working on my three-step drop and my six-step drop, and I was throwing the football around. Maybe you remember breaking a cherished vase in your house, and you expected to receive just anger, but instead there was tenderness. Maybe you recall secretly borrowing your brother or sister's shirt and getting a stain on it. 
leaning against a freshly painted door in your dad's new Nike pullover. I know that's happened to at least one person in here. Um, Maybe when you were a teenager, you wrecked your dad's car and when you told him, you got love when you expected judgment. You got kindness when you expected anger. I remember growing up in, in my neighborhood, we played football in the street and each lamppost represented an end zone. And one day we were playing and, and I was quarterback and I, I threw this tight spiral and it went over one side of the car and it came down at such a trajectory that it shattered the rear view mirror on the other side. I mean, it sounds like a geometric impossibility, but that's what happened. It went over the car, it came down, it shattered the rear view mirror on the other side. And I went to tell my neighbor, Jeff, I was trembling. Seriously, I was probably 13 or 14. Jeff was a muscular guy, one of the most buff guys on our street. And I went to tell him and he said, hey, don't, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, it's okay. These things happen. I couldn't believe it. Having spent a lot of time in South Africa over the last 15 years, I love the story of Officer Vanderbrook and a 70-year-old South African woman who absolutely shocked a courtroom. After committing some heinous crimes in South Africa during the apartheid era, Officer Vanderbrook stood in court confronted with killing the 70-year-old woman's teenage son. 18 years old when this officer shot him at point-blank range. And then, to the celebration of the officers around him, he burned this this teenager's body, again, while everyone else celebrated and danced. Now he's standing in court facing the mother of the young man whose life he took so prematurely. And... After hearing the officer's confession, declaring his guilt, admitting his guilt, a member of the South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission turned to the woman and asked, so what do you want? How should justice be done to the man who so brutally destroyed your family? And the woman looked directly at the officer and said, I forgive you. The only thing I ask, she said, I would like for you to come to my house twice a month and spend a day with me so that I can pour out on you whatever love I still have remaining in me. I have no one else to give a mother's love. When the officer heard this, he fainted, literally collapsed to the floor, and the entire courtroom began singing Amazing Grace. Can you remember a situation where you've experienced grace, where you've experienced mercy, Can you remember what it did to you? There's power when we know that we deserve to be held accountable. We we deserve to be punished. But we get love instead. There's tremendous power in grace. And that's what this book is about. We're going to cover the first four verses this morning. Let me start by reading Jonah chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord reads this way. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. But who's Jonah? Well, we don't know a lot about Jonah. We know he was a prophet from the land of the northern kingdom uh, some 800 years before uh, Jesus came. 
According to 2 Kings 14, we know that he had a prophecy to give in the days of Jeroboam II. So this is roughly in the late 790s, say, B.C. Uh, Jonah was a contemporary of, of Hosea and Amos. You've probably heard, uh, you certainly heard of those other two prophets who have uh, their own books in the Bible, so to speak. Um, but Jonah was one of the rare prophets, actually, who had the privilege of conveying good news to his fellow people and seeing that good news materialize. In the middle of the kingdom, which was actually doing terrible evil in the sight of God, Jonah comes into Jeroboam's courtroom and says, God will restore the boundaries. You, have, you will have unprecedented expansion. Joah prophesied again during peaceful times in the northern kingdom. And again, that's about all we know. We know, as I just read, that he was a prophet from Gath-Hefer, which was about three miles uh, from Nazareth. He was an Israelite. His father was Amittai. Again, that's all we know, but that's okay because the real story here is about God and his grace and mercy. The real character of Jonah is not the one who would be swallowed by the great fish. The real character is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. Now look at verse 2 again. Arise, Jonah is told. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Now here's the first thing we see about God here, which is going to set the stage really for the rest of the book, and even we could say for the rest of the New Testament, or for the New Testament which would follow, it's this. Moved by his mercy, our God is a sending God. The sending nature of God runs throughout the scriptures. In fact, the Bible is replete with examples of people who have been sent by God. Uh, remember, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, and you have Abram who's um, really doing pretty well on his own. He, there's no indication that Abram is filled with wanderlust, that he wants to know what's happening in the eastern part of the world. He seems to be doing fine, and yet God appears uh, to Abram, and he says in, in Genesis 12, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land I will show you. So Abram, you know, he's, he's as far as we know, he's an idol worshiper in the land of Ur. God calls him and he sends him out so that all the peoples on the earth will become aware of, be introduced to this true living God by way of Abram's descendants. He changes his name to Abraham. He's sent out by God. And then later we see the prophets. They were a bit of a wandering bunch. They're they're going in different places, sent by God to various nations to warn the people of their rebellion and call them to repent. God's sending out his emissaries, his ambassadors. And of course, the preeminent example of God's sending, of God's sending nature is God's sending his son. In the New Testament, in John's gospel alone, more than 40 times Jesus is described as being sent. God the son who eternally existed in perfect inner Trinitarian harmony with God the Father and God the Spirit, enjoying the confines of heaven, came into the world. Why? Because he was sent by God. He was sent by God. God sends his son on mission as an expression of his love to rescue a lost people by his de life, death, and resurrection so that all who believe on him can be reconciled to that very God and made right with him. God sends his own son. And then in John 20, 21, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. God sent Abraham. Then God sent the prophets to tell the world about who he is, 
Then God sent Jesus as our rescuer, our redeemer, our savior. And then now God has sent us. A friend of mine, Larry Osborne, who's an author and pastor down around San Diego, has written extensively on this. He says very pointedly, Jesus gave us a mission. It's crystal clear. It's not the least bit ambiguous. We are to make disciples among all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything he commanded. To do that, we have to align and constantly realign ourselves towards the task. So we're called to introduce people to this living God, to get the good news of God's salvation to everyone who lies in darkness, and not just to get the news to them, but also to lovingly and prayerfully call them to believe it, to invite them with everything we have in us, of course, relying totally on the power of God, but to invite people to receive this good news of Jesus, to call people to be reconciled to God, And I'm thrilled, by the way, with the number of folks, which is actually pretty surprising. Consider the size of our church here in North Alabama, the number of folks from this very church that God has called to other parts of the world. And I pray that he would send more people, maybe one of my sons, one of my daughters, to be his ambassador, to share the good news. And and, and by the way, even if you don't go overseas, you still have been sent by God. God sends us on mission. We're on mission. To be reconciled is to be a minister of reconciliation. To be a disciple is to be a disciple maker. To follow Jesus means to embrace embrace his mission. But don't we see over and over in in the scriptures this pattern? It was one that Sean Cooper pointed out when he spoke here on a Saturday morning at Capture just a month ago. Don't we see this pattern? God says go and God's people say no. Go, and God's people say no. Look at what happened with Jonah, verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee, to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So the question, this begs the question, why did Jonah flee? Why did he run? Why was he so intent on being away from the presence of God? Now, Jonah was a a prophet. He understood God's omnipresence, but he, he no longer wanted to be in the relational presence of God. He no longer wanted to be under God's authority. But why did he run? Well, there are two reasons that Jonah fled. Fear and hatred. Remember, as I mentioned, Jonah was an Israelite. He was from the little town of Gath Hefer, just north, north of, uh, or outside of Nazareth. Nineveh, where, where God told him to go, was the capital of Assyria. And Nineveh was a terrible city. When the Lord calls it a great city in verse 1, this is not an ethical valuation. It just referred to Nineveh's size, power, and influence. It was a great city. Nineveh wielded tremendous influence, but it was the worst kind of influence. Assyria, of which Nineveh was the capital, was the greatest world power of that day and represented the most dangerous threat to Israel. And Assyria was probably the most evil nation in world history up to that point. Now, I'm going to get a little PG-13 here for just a moment. Um, but I have to in order for you, for, for us to understand 
a little bit about what Nineveh was like and what Assyria was like. One historian reports this about Assyria. When Assyrian kings defeated a neighboring country, they would keep count of the number of corpses and the number of skulls that cover the ground, bragging about that total. The emperor, Shalmaneser III, was particularly known for his cruelty, even making plaques, engraving plaques which described the way he would dismember and decapitate his enemies. Now get this, this is about as graphic and, and really evil as it comes. Sometimes the Assyrians would cut off both legs and one arm of their enemies so that they could mockingly, mockingly shake hands with them while they bled to death. Just shows you just how hateful. They would kill the father of a family and then force that dead man's wife, the mother of his children, to walk around town with the father's head on a pole. Now I could go on and on, I won't. It only gets worse. But I say all that to let you know how perverse and inhumane the Assyrians were known to be. And Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. So on one level, Jonah was afraid. He didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew about the evils therein. How, how, could, it, how could he not be? In fact, asking Jonah to go to Nineveh and call the Ninevites to repentance would be like asking a Jewish rabbi in New York City in 1941, to go to Berlin and call the Nazis to repent. It was a, a notion that would strike fear, of course, in anyone. So, so one reason that, that Jonah said he, he got up and he fled from the presence of the Lord was fear. The other reason was hatred. Israel hated the Assyrians. Jonah hated Nineveh and the Assyrians. He hated what they stood for. He hated the way they treated the neighboring nations. He hated everything about them. In fact, he hated them so much that he didn't even want them to repent. The real reason that Jonah refuses this assignment is because he knows something about God's character. Jonah knows that God will be gracious to these evil, hateful, immoral, and idol-worshiping Ninevites God knows that God, he knows that God will forgive them if they repent. And Jonah, he can't stand the thought of someone he hated so deeply repenting and turning to the Lord. In fact, and I say this carefully, not glibly, Jonah hated the Ninevites so badly that he would rather have seen them go to hell than turn to God in repentance. Here's what Jonah realizes so deeply but cannot accept. It's our second point. God's grace for the outsider is uncomfortably extravagant. Now think about this way. Assyria in the 8th century BC was as evil as Nazi Germany. Assyria was as wicked and evil as ISIS. In fact, one historian writes... Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling as any history we know. They represented the personification of depravity and wickedness. These are the enemies of God, the enemies of God's very chosen people. And they are intent on destroying God's people. And how does God feel about them, the Assyrians? This is where it gets crazy. He has compassion on them. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. 
He sees their dignity and worth as image bearers of God despite their cruelty and evil. His desire, God's desire, is to see them restored. You say, well, verse 1 says that Jonah was instructed to go to Nineveh and call out against it because of their evil. That's true. What happens when God sends a prophet to call out against a city? What is it? It's a warning. It's a warning. And what is a warning? An opportunity to repent. It's why when you'll see, you'll be out in the supermarket or in a restaurant and you'll see a parent say to a child, they'll start counting from one to five. One, two, the kid doesn't do anything. Three, the kid doesn't do anything. Four, the kid, and then by the time they get to four and a half, the kid does something, right? It's a warning. It's a warning. Now is your time to repent. I don't want to spoil it for you, but if you've read Jonah, you know that the warning actually led to their repentance. I say that God's grace is extravagant because God's heart for broken people, for sinful people, is shocking. I say that it was uncomfortably extravagant because it's a bit unnerving when we think that God would actually lavish his affection, that he would actually call these people to repent. I called this series Runaway Grace because that's what it seems like to us. God's grace has gotten out of control. Should people this evil, should people this wicked, as evil as the ancient Assyrians be offered the opportunity to repent? Now, there's a lot of wickedness we see in our world. A lot of God-hating, sexually perverse, idolatrous people in our world. People who do evil behind closed doors. People who abuse children. People who steal from the poor. People who rape helpless women. People who traffic and sex slaves. People who embezzle money. People who cheat on their spouses repeatedly. People who produce pornography. People who terrorize Christians. Should those people, in the list I just mentioned, should they be told about God's grace? Should those people be called to repentance and faith? Should those people be invited to turn to the Lord? Several years ago, my teenage son came home from school. He was all fired up and angry, pacing about the house. I said, what, what, what's wrong? He said, well, we had oral uh, presentations uh, this afternoon in class, and, and one person in the class did a report on the abuse of the elderly. He said, Dad, I couldn't believe some of the things I was hearing. He said, some of elderly folks in their 80s, 90s, triple digits, whatever it is, they're being totally neglected. He said, they're being slapped, ridiculed. This guy told a story about one of our, an elderly person being pinched. He was beside himself. He woke up the next morning. I saw him at breakfast. He said, I couldn't sleep at all. Just thinking about this terrible abuse. Should we proclaim the gospel to those abusers? I read an article in a New York magazine a few weeks ago that, about the rise of pedophilia among Roman Catholic priests. Are they outside of the scope of God's grace? Should they be given an opportunity to repent and turn to the Lord? If the Ninevites, if the Assyrians, the sworn enemies of God's people 
dead set on destroying the people of God, are so important to God that he sends his best known prophet to them to call them to repent, then no one is beyond the power of God's grace and no one should ever be written off by us. Now, what does this reality cause us to do? Well, I think it causes us to pray more for our enemies, certainly. And not just that God would bring them low, although that's a fair prayer, but that God may bring them low so that he can raise them up in repentance and faith. I think it causes us to pray for our enemies. I think it causes us to to care deeply about those who are broken, those who in our eyes are the most evil. It forces us to recognize that every single human being is an image bearer of God and therefore of worth. Well, God's grace is not only uncomfortably extravagant, and I can feel the, the lack of comfort in the room right now. It's not only uncomfortably extravagant for outsiders. And I put outsiders in quotes because there really are no outsiders, at least none too evil to be cleansed by God's grace. But God's grace is also directed toward those who consider themselves insiders as well. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 1. Again, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now this is an important phrase. When the text tells us the word of the Lord came to Jonah, this doesn't mean that God just said, you know, Jonah, um, I got something I think I want you to tell some people. It's kind of been on my mind a little bit, and so I want you to go tell these people something. You're just going to kind of serve as my mouthpiece to tell uh, these. No, that's not what happens when when you read the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, what happens is God is surveying his creation. He's looking down on the people he made. He's looking down in the culture and the city and the communities. And he's so bothered by what he sees that he sends one of his prophets to go and say, enough is enough. He sends one of his prophets to go and say, and demand change. You must repent. Turn from your evil ways. It's not simply as though Jonah has a message from God. Jonah has a message from God to go and tell people who want nothing to do with God to repent. So this was a big deal. But when God said to Jonah in verse 2, arise and go to Nineveh, there's a bit of a play on words here. Verse 3 tells us that Jonah arose. But he didn't go where God told him to go. He went in the opposite direction to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now we say, no, wait a second. Jonah is this esteemed prophet if God had an A-team, Jonah would be on the A-team. He's, he's highly regarded. He's one who saw his, what he prophesied come true through Jeroboam's military leadership. He'd seen God work in powerful ways. He himself had been protected by God. And this is what makes Jonah's response so egregious. He is a recipient of incredible grace, but he absolutely refuses to share that grace with others. He's grateful for the grace shown to him, but he cannot stand the thought of the people of Nineveh receiving such grace. So not only does he ignore God's command, as we're going to see as we work our way through twice, trying to flee God's presence, which was deliberate in-your-face disobedience against God, but he's also a terrible hypocrite. He's been shown love by God, but he does not want others to receive love. He's what you might call a hoarder of God's grace. You know what a hoarder is? A hoarder just says, I got to keep everything. I got to keep it all to myself. I can't get rid of it. I can't throw it. I can't let anybody else have it. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I can't let anybody else have it. He's a hoarder of God's grace. He doesn't want anyone else 
especially his enemies, to receive it. So he's greatly sinned against God. But here's the thing. God still has grace even for Jonah. Look at verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Now we're going to get more into the meat of the story in the upcoming weeks, but I wanted you to see this. Jonah runs from God. He wants to be away from God's presence. He wants to flee God. He's finished with God, but God is not finished with Jonah. This esteemed prophet called by God has turned his back on the one who called him. He's trying to leave God, but God says, nope, that's not the way it works. I'm going to cause a great storm to arise, and I'm going to grab you back up, and I'm going to keep you. Even if it means moving heaven and earth, so to speak, I'm not going to let you go. I will not let you destroy yourself by rejecting me. Now, here's our final point this morning. God's grace for the believer is no less stunning than his grace for the, quote, outsider. Multiple commentators on the book of Jonah make the point that, that Jonah's rebellion is so incredibly heinous. In fact, I read a couple who said this is, really un, this is basically unprecedented. I don't know where they got that from, but this is unprecedented. In fact, one, one commentator, I, theologian I really respect said, said he could not have sinned more grievously than by forsaking God in refusing his, his call uh, to obey. And I, I agree. I agree in part, right? Yeah, what Jonah did was terrible. It was, it was an in-your-face, direct act of defiance against the very God who called him and loved him and protected him. So yeah, it's a big deal. It's a terrible thing. But here's the deal. There's nothing really that uncommon about Jonah's rebellion. In fact, we're no different than Jonah is. Here's what I mean. Every day we see and experience God's faithfulness, his goodness, his grace, his mercy, and every day our hearts choose to love other things. God sustains us. He provides for us. He has forgiven us. And yet, who can say, I've loved God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, which Jesus says is the greatest commandment. Who can say, yeah, I've done that. I've loved God more than everything else. I've loved God more than my own parents. I've loved God more than my own children. And yet, this is what we're called to do. Who can say, I put aside every other affection, every other temptation? No, we fall prey to temptation and sin all the time. But you know, we have our pet sins that we regard as really bad. These are the ones that we're not inclined to as much. We think the really bad sins are things like sexual sin and physically harming someone else. And no doubt, these are terrible offenses against a holy God. But what about unthankfulness? Romans chapter 1 says that one of the evidences, Paul says one of the evidences of people who are completely separated from God and have turned their back on him is Neither did they give thanks. Ingratitude. What about ingratitude? What about gossip? What about selfishness? What about pride? What about jealousy? What about judgmentalism? In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, the sins of the flesh are bad. He's talking about Sexual, physical, 
sins of the physical appetite, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing, spoiling sport, backbiting the pleasures of power, of hatred. Do we not commit these sins all the time? Just like Jonah, at times, yeah, we respond the way God tells us to do. At times, we do what God tells us to do. Although the truth, we're really told, we probably realize that a lot of times we do, we even say yes for selfish reasons. But yeah, there are times we do what God tells us to do. There are times we've listened to God, but there are other times when we go the opposite direction. If not geographically, at least in our hearts. But just like he did with Jonah, God keeps pursuing us. Working and wooing, sometimes quietly, sometimes in the privacy of our own prayer life, and sometimes by causing a major tempest to arise. God keeps coming after us and pursuing us, only instead of pursuing us with a threat, instead of coming after us with a promise of judgment, God pursues us with a reminder that sin you committed that's one that Jesus paid for. You're forgiven. And that other one too, that, that, that sin is one that Jesus died for. You don't have to live with shame and guilt over past sin. And that sin that you're hiding that no one else knows about, that you're covering up, that was covered on the cross. You're not defined by what you've done. You are forgiven. You are beloved if you put your faith in Jesus. And so God keeps coming after us. He keeps pursuing us with this reminder you are loved in Christ. See, for us, so often we're only as good in our minds as the last 24 hours. And if that last 24 hours contains a major setback, a recurring sin, a failure, we really hoped we'd had victory over, then we think, well, God's, he's had enough. Surely he's had enough. Or maybe even, we start to doubt God's goodness. Maybe we even start to doubt God's presence, the existence of God. We feel like surely God is frustrated with us. Surely he's reconsidering his commitment to us. My son, uh, my oldest son is dating a young lady who is a leader of a, of a dance troupe at Wheaton College. And so, I don't know, it's like 20, 20 ladies, and I don't know what kind of dance you call it, but it's beautiful stuff. It really is amazing, the dances that she teaches. And, and, and one, I guess it was last week, that the Wheaton Chapel gave uh, her and her dance troupe the entire chapel service to read scripture, to sing hymns, and to, to dance to these hymns. And, and in between the selections, which was very beautiful stuff, in between the selections, each, uh, or a young lady would come up and share her testimony. And so we were actually, Jenny and I were watching by live stream. We were watching the chapel service and uh, Quinn had said, hey, it's going to be on at 1040. And so we were watching it. And, and then this young lady that, that Quinn is dating, she came up and she shared her testimony, which I had never heard before. But then she said, you know, even last summer, even last summer, I, I really was doubting if God was real. I didn't even know if I actually believed God or if this was all stuff I've been taught. But she said, through some conversations with my mother, through some quiet time with the Lord, the Lord just kept coming after me. 
He just kept reassuring me of his comforting presence, of his existence, of his love for me and Christ. It was such a moving testimony, both the, both the vulnerability that she displayed, but also the faithfulness of God. This is what God does. God pursues us with a reminder that his love is constant. By his spirit, he pours his love into our hearts and he keeps on doing so. It's not once and done. It's constant because his love is not based on our performance, but on Jesus' obedient life for us. The same Jesus that he sent, remember God's ascending God, that same Jesus that God sent who died for our sins and was raised again is now in heaven praying for us and interceding for us and reassuring us of God's love for us. He keeps coming toward us by his grace. He's constantly pursuing us because we are of great worth to him. And our worth, as we're going to sing about in just a second, is not rooted in what we can do for God. It's not rooted in what we've accomplished. It's not rooted in what we own. It's not even rooted in how hard we work. It's anchored in the costly wounds of love that flowed at the cross in the priceless blood of Jesus Christ, the one who died for us, who lived for us as the supreme act of God's amazing grace. Let's pray.